With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host, that woman who yells about men and the patriarchy, but also loves mythology more than anything. Live. Because mythology is awesome, particularly awesome in moments like these where we can look at all the many variations that exist on these stories. Variations that are even more obvious and wild when they're coming from later Roman authors. Yes, Due to the extreme inspiration from last week's or last Friday's conversation episode, today I am covering Ovid's versions of Medea and Circe because, well, they're really something. And they're versions I haven't told you in full before because I've been so concerned with the traditionally Greek takes on these amazing women that I didn't really notice what Ovid's done to them, except for the dragon chariot. Fuck, I've always loved that dragon chariot. And if I'm honest, though, I've I've never read the bits of Ovid's metamorphoses that reimagine the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, and beyond because, well, I, I have the Iliad and the Odyssey, so who needed Ovid? But I guess... There was this reason too, after all. So one of the things that's fascinated me since I first learned about it and realized myself is the difference between Greek and Roman witches. That is, the way the myths and stories depict the idea of magic and witchcraft and witches as as people. Witches have to be one of the most enormous departures between these two cultures' mythologies. Like It's like they don't even resemble one another. This is a little bit different when the witch is actually Greek, but still, Ovid has his own take on it. In the case of Ovid, he's a Roman who is explicitly interested in Greek stories and who appears to also, at least a bit, care about the lives and feelings of women, 
at least when it comes to this work, this particular work in question, the metamorphoses. But I'm getting ahead of myself. A quick announcement first. Next week, you will see the first of a series of bonus episodes drop into your podcast feeds. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show yet because it was originally set to air earlier but got pushed to next week. But I am teaming up with the people at the podcast network Q Code to bring you bonus episodes of my show that tie in with a new show they've got airing next week. It's called Cupid, and it's essentially a fictional rom-com based in Greek myth. So, obviously, I was intrigued and thrilled to work with them. So, every Wednesday, beginning next week, there will be a bonus episode of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, that accompanies that previous week's episode of Cupid. I will talk about the mythological background of the characters they introduce, I'll give context, and so much more. It's fun, and bonus, it's short, and free! And Cupid is a very fun show, so you should listen to all of it, because why wouldn't you? Content. Everyone loves content. And another quick note is that the Sparta series that I teased at is getting delayed due to these bonus episodes coming out. I don't want to overshadow any of the Sparta content that is coming your way. So that series is going to air in January, which frankly fits because it's a year after I did the special series on Atlantis. So I guess January is my special season month now. Okay, now, Medea and Circe, Ovid style. This is episode 184, when in Rome, the very Ovidian witches, Medea and Circe. The first thing you notice when you start looking at and specifically comparing witches in Greek myth to witches in Roman stories is the visual conjured between the two. In Greek myth, our famous witches are women like Circe, Medea, and Hecate. They're powerful, incredibly powerful, and important, if sometimes for the wrong reasons. They are goddesses, aside from Medea, though she is still divine, a descendant of gods, and they are, we are to believe, beautiful. This might not be explicit for, say, Hecate, but it certainly is for Circe and Medea. They're beautiful and seductive and powerful. They are, in a word, awesome. And then, the Roman. I won't dive too deep into the varied witches from Roman stories, but if you're curious, then listen back to the episode I aired last year about Roman witches with my guest Maxwell Paul. That's where all of this started becoming really obvious to me. Because Roman witches, while not all of them, and typically appearing in poetry rather than explicit mythology like the Greek, are horrible. They're usually old, bent, and broken, and ugly, just crones. They're weird and gross. They're always looking for a man or boys. And again, using weird and gross means. They're caricatures, often jokes to be laughed at, not goddesses capable of great and powerful things. So when that's the general consensus on Roman witches in literature, then how does someone like Ovid handle two explicitly powerful witches whose stories are based in ancient Greece, where the very idea of witches and witchcraft is so explicitly different? Well, today that's what we're going to look at. Enter Medea. I'm not going to recap the whole story of Medea. I can only assume you've listened to at least one of my many episodes on her. A very simple reminder. She meets Jason in her homeland in the east, where the sun rises from. In Colchis. There she falls in love with him, though it is at the hands of Hera via Aphrodite and Eros or Cupid. It is divine love. And it has to be because Jason is the worst. And so she leaves Colchis with him, returning to Greece where all of her wildest and murderiest shit goes down. And of course, it's spooky season, so all the murderiest shit is exactly what we're concerned with today. There are endless variations of what exactly happens when Jason and Medea arrive back in Iolcus after getting that famous golden fleece of theirs. 
Iolcus is the city where Jason is from. And so in these variations, is Jason's father already dead? Is he still alive and very old and nearly dead? Do they kill Peleus, the king of Iolcus, who sent Jason on the quest in the first place? Or if they do kill Peleus, is it Medea who does it? Or or is it Jason? Seriously, it's like every author from ancient Greece had a different take on this moment. It's wild. But the version that Ovid goes with here is, well, it's not unique to Ovid. <laughs> but oh, 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 does he elaborate on it and make Medea more witchy than we could ever imagine her to be. See, the story Ovid chooses is that when Medea and Jason arrive back in Iolcus, Jason's father, whose name I hate trying to pronounce, but is something like Eason, is very, very old, and Jason is worried about him. He asks Medea to restore his father's youth. He even goes so far as to ask her to take some of his own years away in order to give them to his father. Medea, though, has a better idea. She tells Jason that with Hecate's magic, she should be able to restore youth to his father without taking any of his years away. She is that powerful. The ancient Greek versions of this bit are minimal. Basically, we just know that Medea restored some youth to Jason's father. Ovid, though? Ovid does what Ovid does best. Drama. So Medea says, quote, Now I have need of juices to renew the life of an old man, so that he can regain his youth, the years that he knew first. I know that you will help me. It is plain. The stars are glittering and not in vain. Drawn by the yoked winged dragons, a chariot is now at hand. Yeah. This is the moment I referenced in my conversation with Antonia because it's what stands out to me most. Ovid has Medea hop in her dragon-drawn chariot and fly over the whole of the Greek world in search of ingredients. And yeah, this is entirely an invention by Ovid. He likely took the existence of a dragon chariot from Euripides' play, but otherwise, this is all him. And boy, is it a saga to really emphasize not only Medea's power, but also the general magic of it all. Medea flies all over, picking up ingredients along the way with little references peppered throughout, like the herb she pulled that gave new life, which Ovid says was, quote, not yet well known for what it did to Glaucus, which yeah, we'll get to that. Just the very scent of this powerful herb sloughed off the years from the dragons pulling Medea's chariot. That's how powerful it was. When she returns home to Iolcus, she builds an altar, but she very intentionally builds it on the other side of the home's threshold, not within it. That's important. That and she builds two altars, actually, one to Hecate and one to Hebe, youth. When everything's prepared, she begins to perform her spells, calling to the gods of the underworld, quote, the monarch of the shades, and she whom he had stolen as his bride, his dark realm's queen. What a badass way to describe Hades and Persephone, even if it has a little unfortunate reminder of their origins. Medea continues with her magic, with Ovid describing everything she does in great detail. So many bits and pieces just laying out Jason's father as though he's already dead, forcing everyone else to leave her alone so they can't witness the magic itself. Then, when everyone's gone, the real magic starts, and Medea is described as being disheveled like a maenad. She soaks torches in blood, lighting them and purifying the body while her potions bubble away nearby. The potion itself is a medley, the herbs she found in Greece, in, in Thessaly, and, quote, stones from the Far East and sands the ocean washed up on the beach and hoarfrost gathered when the moon was full and filthy wings, flesh still attached, of screech owls, together with the guts of a werewolf which has the power to change its savage snout and show a human face. Where did she find the guts of a werewolf? Who? 
Ooh. It also has the liver of a stag, the skin of Libyan snakes, and the head and beak of a 90-year-old crow. And then she is immediately referred to as a barbarian. That Medea's potion is spelled out so distinctly, featuring ingredients from foreign places, from the East and Libya and beyond, and and animals that would not normally be sacrificed or would even be revered at times, like snakes, before she's even immediately referred to as a barbarian? None of this is coincidental. In fact, it's exactly what Antonia is studying. Medea is being depicted as explicitly foreign, using explicitly foreign means to restore life to Jason's father. She is a barbarian, not a Greek, or in this case, not a Greek and not a Roman. She is other, both in terms of her origins and the means by which she's working with this magic. She may not be a Roman witch in the way they're usually depicted, old and gross and frankly just weird, but she is very much othered and foreign and scary. And the scary is just beginning because once Medea's potion is ready, she slits Jason's father's throat and watches as all of his blood drains from his body. And then she replaces his blood with the bubbling and horribly disturbing, probably smelled horrific, potion. Of course, this is not the only instance of Medea using incredibly descriptive and disturbing magic. She does something similar, if much more murderous, to the king of Iolcus who sent Jason off in the first place, Peleus. But there she uses her wild and foreign barbarian magic to have Peleus' own daughters murder him, tear him to pieces. There, surprisingly, Ovid isn't as detailed. He's much more concerned with her actual gathering of ingredients, her travels themselves. Still, I am trying to fit Ovid's descriptions of both Medea and Circe into this episode, so we must move forward. Soon enough, you'll hear me recite the whole of it on the podcast. Just a few more books of Ovid's Metamorphoses to go. So... Up next in Medea's Ovidian run is to flee from Iolcus after the death of the king Peleus. Obviously, she can't stay there. And so in the traditional mythology, after this moment, she travels to Corinth with Jason, where they live, (laughs) at least for a while, quite happily. Here, though, Ovid presents us with another wildly elaborate and invented journey of Medea. Now, geographically, Iolcus is in Thessaly, which is northern-ish part of Greece, or at least it's, it's north of Corinth, where Jason and Medea will eventually end up, in order for them to keep on with the more famous aspects of their story, all the business from Euripides' play. Corinth is the town just beyond the Isthmus, the piece of land that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to mainland Greece. I'm telling you this because... While the two aren't particularly far apart, especially if you're riding in a dragon-drawn chariot like the badass queen witch that you are, and yet Medea's journey takes her all the fuck over. And this is where she gets an, an overhead view of so many famous moments of transformation as recounted by Ovid. Medea first flies over Mount Pelion and then Mount Othrys, where we're told a man named Carambus was saved from the deluge sent by the gods. Next, she makes her way across the whole of the Aegean, flying over a city in Anatolia, modern Turkey, called Pitani, where she saw a dragon that had been transformed to stone. Then Ida by Troy, where we're told Bacchus hid as a stag, and she saw where Paris was buried under the sands of Troy. She saw where Hecuba had been transformed by Hecate, becoming one of the goddess's terrifying dogs. She saw the island of Kos and the city of Eurypolis, where, quote, women sprouted horns while Hercules and his invading ranks withdrew. 
This is a city where Heracles landed once in a storm, but was mistaken for a pirate and attacked. Do I understand the reference of women spreading horns? No, that feels very Ovid. But the list goes on. Next, he speaks of the Telconies, the people mentioned in Friday's episode. These are a group famous for magic wizardry. Ovid says they, quote, were submerged by Jove because their gaze infected anything they saw, despising them. Jove called on Neptune's aid and drowned them all within his brother's waves. Next, Medea saw the veil where the young boy, Kicknes, was transformed into a swan. Next, she saw an island sacred to Leto, Latona in the Latin, where a king and queen had been transformed into birds. And after that, she saw Mount Kylene, where, quote, fate would have depraved Menephron mate with his own mother, the incestuous way of wild beasts. So yeah, that's a story I hadn't heard before. Whew, and it seems to be mostly here in Ovid and other late Roman sources as simply a very gross and disturbing aside. It's lovely. Continuing on, Medea looked down and saw the river god Cephasus, whose grandson had been transformed by Apollo. And so the river god wept as Medea looked down on him. And she saw another distraught father, Eumelus, whose children had been transformed into birds for their crimes. And with a last look at the traumas of Earth, Medea reached Corinth. Medea's journey to Corinth is fascinating. First, it's entirely Ovid invented, and it's clearly being used as a way of providing an overview, literally, of a bunch of other transformation stories that Ovid wants to include, but clearly doesn't have enough narrative to actually fit them in. I feel you, Ovid. Sometimes there just isn't enough story to be told. But this is his way around it, featuring these minor reference points. They're all about either magic or trauma, the gods transforming people as punishment, and Medea, a woman who's just committed multiple murders, looking down at these traumas from above. It's really interesting. Generally, Ovid's Metamorphoses is interesting in its own right, if only because it was intentionally written. For the most part, the mythological sources from ancient Greece weren't written intentionally. I talk about it all the time, but they were oral storytelling traditions that were eventually, in some form or another, put into written words so that they survive for us today. But they typically weren't written with any kind of intent or narrative structure in mind. So we end up with a kind of mishmash of everything. Some stories have all the detail in the world, and others have like half a sentence. Meanwhile, Ovid is the opposite. This was a written book. Written as a book, an epic poem, a story retelling stories of transformation. It's mostly inspired by Greek myth, but there are also so many moments like the ones I've just listed where it might be Ovid inventing something entirely, or he might have been working off of a source we no longer have, but either way he was expanding upon and changing the stories to fit his intended narrative. Medea specifically is a great example of this. Both of the moments of her flying over the Greek world in her dragon-drawn chariot are almost certainly invented by Ovid, and absolutely he invented her seeing all those transformations below, because that's the whole point of his book. Anyway, it's beautiful and weird, and this Medea is something special. She's a murderous witch, yes, and far more witchy than her Greek tradition. Far more about the bubble-bubble toil and trouble of it all. The witch cackling over her potion, feeding horrifying ingredients into it, and then tossing in entire human bodies. That's Ovid's Medea. But Ovid's Medea also takes a tour of the Greek world in her chariot, just kind of watching. Ovid's Medea contains multitudes. But what about Ovid's Circe?
With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.
Ovid Circe is fickle and vengeful. She's jealous and petty and generally dangerous. Where Medea is traditionally murderous, and so Ovid's version can't exactly make her more murderous, just more witchy and violent, Homer Circe isn't murderous. She transforms some men into pigs, sure, but that's self-defense and she fixes it pretty quickly. Ovid's Circe, though? Whew. Well, that's where we get a story made a bit more famous by Madeline Miller's book, Circe, of the time Circe transformed the nymph Scylla. As far as I know, this is exclusively in Ovid. Not Scylla and not Glaucus, but Circe's involvement. I've told this story in more detail in a mini-myth from a few years ago devoted to Circe, which I've linked in this episode's description, so today I just want to look at what makes her straight up dangerous, where she explicitly diverges from Homer's Circe, i.e. the original Circe. Circe isn't mentioned in many ancient Greek sources beyond Homer, much like a lot of the characters that feature in the Trojan War and the Odyssey. They're pretty specific to those Homeric epics. So the version we have of Circe is pretty explicit. She is the Circe of the Odyssey, and when it comes to ancient Greek mythology, there's little else to know. I've said it before, I'll say it again, the telegony is not canon, and you will never hear me mention its details on this podcast because I hate it more than anything, though... Frankly, I'm kind of considering doing a TikTok about it because it's weird and gross and maybe perfect for anything that isn't this podcast. Regardless, Circe, as we know her, is the Circe of Homer. Beyond that, there are just a handful of Greek references to her. And then whatever we get later in Rome, notably this Ovidian Circe. And this Ovidian Circe is a fucking jealous petty bitch. Like, I kind of hate her for womankind, particularly in comparison to Homer. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Glaucus was a man from Evia, the large island just off the coast of Attica, and one day he found himself not in Evia, but with Circe on her island, where her tamed beasts roamed quite happily. There, Glaucus told Circe of a woman he'd fallen in love with, a woman named Scylla. He tells Circe that he's so in love with Scylla, but that no matter what he's tried in an attempt to woo her, to get her to like him back, she just doesn't. Which, of course, would be the perfect time for Glaucus to just call it and say, well, I guess this woman doesn't want me, and that's fine, because, as will be very appropriate shortly, there are plenty of fish in the sea. But obviously, obviously, Glaucus doesn't think that. Instead, he goes and speaks to a witch about forcing Scylla to love him. Cool. So he tells Circe how he loves Scylla and asks Circe specifically not to cure his want of Scylla, but instead to magically induce her to love him. Good, great, cool. Of course, Circe is fully capable of this. But, as Ovid says, quote, Circe is familiar with such flames. No one in matters of the heart falls prey more easily than Circe. Ovid's making very clear here. His Circe falls in love easily and falls in love hard. He also notes that this may not be anything to do with her and instead is likely to be a curse from Aphrodite since Circe's father Helios is the one who tattled on her and Ares to have vice us. Regardless of how it came to be this way, though, this Circe is cursed to fall in love and fall hard. And so, basically, she's already fallen in love with Glaucus in the mere moments he stood before her talking about his love for another woman. Yeah, it sounds like Aphrodite's influence to me. So instead of saying anything yet about helping Glaucus with Scylla, she tells him that he should instead find someone better and someone who likes him back. This is, of course, quite reasonable, except for the fact that she then proceeds to explain how she is actually best for him and he should love her instead. Even though they've just met and he's uh, only been talking about Scylla. <laughs> anyway, this isn't going to go well and it isn't good for the broad story of women. No, indeed. She tells Glaucus, quote, 
I cite myself as proof, although I am a goddess, daughter of the sun, and have the power to enchant with song, and to entrance with potent herbs, I long to be your own. It's you I want. Sure, Circe. Glaucus doesn't budge, though. In fact, he has a magnificent line in response. He says, quote, Green foliage will blossom in the sea and seaweed sprout upon the highest peaks before my love for Scylla suffers change as long as she's alive. If he wasn't a super creepy stalker, that would almost be lovely. Cersei does not take this rejection well. As soon as Glaucus has turned her down and confirmed that he still loves Scylla, Cersei immediately turns to her magic. Quote, Straightway she pounds and minces noxious herbs, whose juices are horrific. As she mixes those potions, she intones infernal chants, the spells of Hecate. And so, once again, we have not only explicit magic, but explicit magic that's described with terms suggesting just how bad it is, how different from what humans do upon the earth, how dangerous and noxious. Of course, in this case, it is. But the intention is still to make Cersei into a more Roman-style witch, one brewing disturbing potions in order to make men fall in love with her. Or, rather, in this case, destroy the women they're in love with instead. Because you've got to add just a touch of patriarchy and misogyny in there. As a treat. She can't just punish Glaucus or make him fall in love with her. She has to punish Scylla. And she does. She uses this potion on Scylla, pouring it in the bay where Scylla would swim. There, quote, she scatters venom drawn from dreadful roots and tangled maze of words, a labyrinth, the magic chant that issues from her lips. She transforms Scylla into the Scylla that we now know. Quote, no sooner has she plunged waist deep into the water than she sees around her hips the horrid barking shapes. At first, not able to believe that these are part of her own body, Scylla flees, afraid. She tries to chase off these loud dogs. But it is her body, her bottom half now transformed, to have dogs protruding from her, barking maniacally. And so she was forced to find a place, near to Charybdis, that whirlpool on the narrow strait of Messina, where she will forever pick sailors off their ships and devour them. Now, this story of Scylla and Glaucus, too, has origins in earlier myths. Glaucus eventually becomes a sea monster god. <laughs> it's the fish in the sea joke. It's not as funny if you have to explain it. What are you talking about? And obviously Scylla, in her monstrous form, is always a feature of that area. Notably from the Odyssey. But it's Circe's involvement that seems to be invented later, appearing only in Ovid and other late sources that retell this bit. In fact, one would imagine that if this bit of the story were older, that it would absolutely be included in the Odyssey. You know how Homer likes a backstory, a simile. And both Circe and Scylla appear in the Odyssey, with Circe explicitly talking about Scylla, and yet none of this is mentioned. All of that is to say, it feels to me that this is a way to demonize Cersei, because she is otherwise pretty harmless, aside from the brief pig moment, and another in Ovid that's about to come. But in Rome, witches were dangerous. Witches used their love for men to do horrible things. So this powerful Greek witch who did no such thing is reimagined into this Roman stereotype. And Ovid isn't finished. This explains Cersei and Scylla's origins. But we hear of her again when Ovid tells the story of Odysseus and his men arriving on Circe's island. This bit of the story is being told by one of Odysseus's men, so it's firsthand from one of the men who met Circe there on Aiaia. 
He explains that they arrived and were first greeted by her animals. Lions, tigers, bears. Oh my. All very terrifying, intimidating, but immediately clear to be tame and kind. The animals just let them be. The nymphs of Circe's palace were welcoming, and the woman herself the same. He explains how incredible this palace was, how beautiful and gleaming lines and lines we have about how wonderful Circe's home was, how kind her animals were, how welcoming her nymphs were. And then, then she asks the nymphs to feed them something, the men, feed them something to drink, something that's described as a mixture of things, honey sweet, but also notably pure wine. Still more importantly, though, quote, in secret, Circe slipped her juices into it. They'd never be detected in a drink so honey-sweet, and we accepted what we got from Circe, from the right hand of such a deity. This is so telling here. She's deceptive where she was once welcoming, and her status as one of the divine is brought into play. And then to seal it, she's referred to as the fatal goddess, when she touches each of their heads with her wand, and they all begin to transform into pigs. The man continues telling the story now, as he heard it later from Eurylochus, who escaped Circe's spell, and Odysseus, or Ulysses, as he's called in Ovid. But I've been really bad about using Roman names here. They came to the rescue. But all of it is expanded upon here. More details than were given in Homer. More explanation and visuals. It's more visceral. And notably, Ulysses has them freed by Circe because they bind themselves together, he and Circe in marriage. And he asks as a wedding gift that she free his men from their transformation. Of course, that transformation is very much from Circe's Homeric roots. But once the man, whose name is Macarius, has been transformed back into himself, and he and Ulysses' other men have spent some time there living in Circe's palace with her and her other nymphs, quite happily, he comes across a statue of a woodpecker, and he asks one of her nymphs what the story behind it is. And that's when she tells him, quote, Just listen, Macarius, and understand what power my mistress has at her command. This tale has much to teach. Pay careful heed. Picus, we're told, was the son of Saturn, that's the Latin name for Kronos, and was a king of Latium, the region of Rome before Rome, if I'm remembering my Aeneid correctly. Picus was desired by all the women around, and he was super fucking sexy, and literally every young woman in however many kilometers wanted him. But he only wanted one woman, a nymph named Canons. And lo and behold, Canons actually loved Picus back. What a wild idea. Gotta love it. Canons loved Picus back, and so they married. She was a singer, too, an incredibly talented one, one who could, quote, move the woods, the stones on hearing her. Wild beasts grew meek. Long rivers stayed their flow to listen. Wandering birds would halt their course. She was really good. But, well... One day, Picus was out hunting, and Circe spotted him. Just like with Glaucus, this Circe fell in love immediately, and she fell hard. She immediately determined that she would have to have Picus, and she tried to call out to him, but her voice was drowned out by the sounds of his horses and the men hunting alongside him. She determined that instead, she would get him via magic. She separated him from his friends by sending a phantom boar for him to hunt, and when the opportunity presented itself, she used her magic. Quote, the goddess called upon infernal sorcery, her chants and charms, invoking obscure gods with a strange spell. As Circe sings and chants her spell, quote, the sky grows dark. Mist rises from the soil, astray along blind paths, his men are lost, and Picus, left alone, has no escort. Ovid Circe tries to convince Picus to fall for her instead, but he legitimately loves his wife, who loves him back equally, <laughs> and he's having none of Circe's attempts at so-called seduction. He continues to emphasize that he is already married, and that will not change. 
And so, Cersei instead transforms Pickus. Transforms him into a woodpecker that pecks frantically at all the trees around him, responding to his trauma. She wasn't done with this horrible transformation, though. After Pickus was gone, his men came to Cersei, demanding she return him to them. And she, well, quote, Cersei sprinkled Pickus's men with venom and his insidious juices, and she called on night and all the gods of night to come from Erebus and chaos, wailing long. She summoned Hecate, and in response, the forests, this is unbelievable, leaped from their place within the ground. The soil groaned, and the trees that stood nearby grew pale. And on the pastures where her poisons fell, the grass was stained with drops of blood. The stones seemed to emit hoarse moans, and the hounds were all barking. Dark snakes swarmed across the ground. One saw the thin shades of the silent dead flitting about. So yeah, Ovid is really pulling on everything magical that he can imagine. It's much darker, more infernal than any witch mentioned in Greek myth. And I mean, it's pretty awesome. Even if this Circe is supremely problematic when it comes to men, she can be pretty badass, at least when she's conjuring shit up. Cannons, Pickus's loving wife, searched for her husband day and night for six days, not eating or drinking anything. And eventually, in her grief, she vanished into thin air. But a place there in Latium keeps her name. And so, those are Ovid's witches. Ovid's Greek witches with Roman characteristics. Ovid's poets and singers, the women who compete with him in poetry. But they do it with their magical incantations and spells. He seems to respect them, if also maybe have a healthy fear, too. Nerds, thank you so much for listening, as always. I just really love when I can find these creative ways of covering spooky topics when I've mostly exhausted the more detailed stories. But looking at how these particular witches are depicted in Ovid is really fascinating. Like, they're so unique, like, brand new characters on their own, separate from their Greek origins, and, and made not only Ovidian, but Roman too. So fun. That said, next week I hope to do more more traditional spooky season that includes some new characters and anecdotes or really also hopefully a lot more Hecate. I know you guys always want more of her. I'm going to mine all the spookiest source books to find some good stuff for you. Probably some underworld gods and deities coming in, ghosts and ghouls, whatever I can find to really cap off my favorite season. Because I do love all things spooky, even if climate change means it's currently like summer style weather where I live and we haven't had rain since like June. Things are going well, but spooky season must prevail. As always, I'm going to leave you with a five-star review from Apple Podcasts in the hopes that you beloved listeners will also leave me a five-star review of your own. Maybe I'll read yours next week. These reviews help others discover the show, and frankly, I've seen a really weird and concerning decline in listeners lately, even if I'm still hearing from all of you so often. And listeners mean ad money, which means I can pay my bills and not give this podcast up in favor of a job that I don't want. So help me, would you? It's free and easy. Just leave me a five-star review and you're going to help keep the podcast running. And I mean, listen to, obviously, if you're hearing this and you probably do, but listening is key. Thank you. You're awesome. This review is from a user named Hope You're Smiling. Isn't that lovely? Five stars. Absolutely incredible. This show is absolutely wonderful. Everything is incredibly well-researched and is presented in an entertaining way. Liv has a beautiful voice and wonderful cadence. I am currently in a larger product surrounding Greek mythology, and this show has been instrumental in my research. Give it a listen, but be prepared to become absolutely hooked. What a lovely review! Thank you, dear listener. For real, this means a whole lot to me. And I get so excited every time I read anyone. Like, truly. So hey, leave me one. 
Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You're super cool and nerdy. And isn't that the best way to be? I am Liv and I love this shit quite a lot. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.